Thank you for listening to the Bible preaching ministry of Dr. Tim Pollock at the Home Church of Lodi, California. You can get more information about our church and about starting a relationship with Jesus Christ at www.thehomechurch.net. Our prayer is that this message from God's Word will renew your heart and mind today. is our series. Today is our ninth, Four Commandments for Living in Light of Eternity. There's an old story that illustrates so well that I'd like to focus on, like us to focus on this morning. There was a salesman who had been working very hard in a particular city. He booked an older hotel, and he came in late at night, extremely tired after a long day. He took off his shoes. He was sitting on the edge of the bed, took off that first shoe. He was so worn out, he just let it fall to the floor, which it did with a distinctive thud. He thought to himself, well, that was thoughtless of me. These walls are kind of thin. It's late at night to drop my shoe like that on the floor. It probably disturbed the person in the room underneath me. And so he took his second shoe and he put it down very gently, went to bed. And about two hours later, there was a knock at the door. He went to the door and there was a man who was staying in the room beneath him. Big, dark circles under his eyes. And he looked at that man and he said, I've been awake for the last two hours. Would you please drop that other shoe? (laughs) Let me just say this morning, this world is waiting for the dropping of the other shoe. The fact of the matter is, everybody who knows anything knows that Jesus Christ came at Bethlehem. That Christ, that same Jesus walked those dusty shores of Galilee. That same Jesus hung on a cruel cross. He was buried and as we sang so beautifully a moment ago, he rose again and he ascended. And the other shoe, Jesus is coming back. He is in fact coming again. It's indisputable. His first coming and if that's the case, his second coming is also indisputable. For him to come once and not a second time and be like having the east without the west. Having salt without pepper. Or as crazy as it seems, go to Cracker Barrel Restaurant and have biscuits without gravy. I mean, that's crazy. Folks, we are here part of the rapture generation. And if you haven't been checking the skies lately, I'm telling you, our Lord Jesus is about ready to come. America, this world, is on a collision course with destiny. And we cannot afford to be ignorant. The fact of the matter is, we cannot afford to be ignorant or indifferent as we wait for the soon coming of our Lord. Now, I know there are many Christians today whose hearts are perplexed, concerned, and grieved, for sure. How could we not be grieved for what we see 
especially in our country. But friend, faith in God looks forward. And faith in God looks upward. Because our King, the Lord Jesus Christ, is in fact coming. And what does it mean that Jesus is coming? Well, how do we live in light of that? And so this wonderful passage in 2 Peter chapter 3, the Holy Spirit tells Peter, I want you to give these people four commandments, four things that are imperative to do in light of the second coming of Christ. He's coming soon. Are you ready? A young woman was expecting her date at any moment. She was dressed and waiting patiently. However, by the time he was an hour late, she figured she'd been screwed up. So she took off her makeup, put on her pajamas, gathered all of the junk food in the house she could find, sat down to watch Netflix with her dog next to her. And just as her favorite program was coming on, the doorbell rang, and it was her date. He stared at her wide-eyed and said, I'm two hours late, and you're still not ready? I want you to be ready. Let's be ready for the coming of Christ. Let's bow for prayer. Father, we thank you for these commandments. Thank you, Lord, that you don't mix any words. You just lay it out straight for us. Give us the grace to receive it and to put it into practice. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, there are over 900 commands in the New Testament. Surprising, many people... But the fact is, each and every one of these are wonderful, brilliant principles for living our best life. This morning, we're going to examine four more of these incredible principles. We could call these the B principles, B-E. There are things we're supposed to be, something we're supposed to put some effort into. In 2 Peter chapter 3, the Holy Spirit is reminding the people... They should be constantly anticipating the coming of Christ, or what the Scripture refers to as the day of God. Look at verse 12 of this chapter. Looking for, notice how it begins, looking for. That little phrase means expecting, or always expecting. Have you ever thought of the fact that we call a pregnant mom... Expecting. She's expecting. And because she's expecting, she can never forget that she, in fact, is. And neither can her husband. After he gets the third bowl of pickles and ice cream for his wife that very same night. Expecting. We're looking for, anticipating. And then it says, and hasting. That means eager. We are expecting and we are eager for the arrival, as it says, the coming of the day of God. The day of God. And then there's a little further description, something that happens right prior to that. The heavens being on fire will be dissolved and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The day of God is another term for the new heavens and the new earth. The fact of the matter is, all of God's people, all that are born again, are heaven-bound. Walking through the storms of life, facing all the strife, I realize that I'm all alone, facing the lightning and the crash of thunder. Oh, how I wonder, is there no hope of me ever going home? I was walking through the storm all alone, 
fear and despair all around. No hope could be found. Then a light within the storm did I see. Jesus Christ had come for me. No longer am I alone. Now he faces my storms and I follow alone. Now I walk on water for all to see. He has raised me above these sinking seas. Satan no longer has any control over me. Jesus has saved me and set me free. Hope has now been found. And now I'm heaven bound. Thank you, Jesus, for setting me free. Thank you, Jesus, for saving a wretch like me. Now I see eternity. Now I realize heaven is for me. Thank you, Jesus, for saving me. And even though my home was now far away, this old body is made of clay. I pray that my life will sway at least just one to come this way. Heaven bound. That's what that means. Heaven bound. Oh, yes, we are heaven bound. Now, even though at the best, at this moment here, that day of God is a thousand and seven years away, if the rapture were to happen right this moment, seven years of tribulation, and then a thousand year millennial reign, and then the day of God. So at best, we're still a thousand and seven years away, but we are still anticipating it because as a born-again saint of God, you are heaven-bound. We are like those whom Abraham spoke of in Hebrews chapter 11. You know this great story of Abraham constantly shifted from one location to another, never knowing from one day what was going to happen. And look what he says in verse 10 of chapter 11 of Hebrews. He looked for a city. Here he was all those years ago looking for heaven. He looked for a city which have foundations, whose builder and maker is God. That's the day of God. We all live in anticipation of that eternal day of God, sometimes called the New Jerusalem in Scripture. It is the final dwelling place for every believer. How then shall we live in light of being heaven-bound? And so now let's join together in the public reading of God's Word. Let's go to 2 Peter 3, verses 14 and 15. Reading Scripture out loud is a very wonderful way to build your faith. Faith comes by hearing, Scripture says. And I believe it all puts us on the same page spiritually. So, if you'll find it there in the King James Version, if you don't have that, you can look on your app, you'll get it, or you can just look here on the screens. So, let's read it together, out loud, ready to begin. Wherefore, beloved, seeing that ye look for such things, be diligent that ye may be found of him in peace, without spot and blameless, and account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation even as our beloved brother Paul, also according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you. Yes, the Lord is coming. German theologian Helmut Delik said the table is already being set for a royal wedding feast. The trumpets of final judgment are slowly being raised. And so in light of eternities, and it's soon coming, in light of the fact that we are heaven-bound, What are the commandments for living right now? How should we live our lives? And let's look at that. Four very succinct commands. Number one, exist peacefully. Exist peacefully. Born-again Christians are to be 
heavenly-minded people. As such, we should be characterized by a spirit of tranquility. Now, I'm not saying that we should just sit around like a bump on a pickle or a dirt bird. No, just a calmful, a calm, restful spirit. Here's how Peter said it. Look at this verse again, verse 14. Wherefore, beloved, seeing that you look for such things, be diligent. Be diligent that you may be found of him in peace. Now, let's go through that verse word by word. It begins with the phrase, wherefore, which we normally would say, therefore. Meaning, as he just said in verse 12, based on the fact of the coming day of God. It's imminent and it's coming. Based on the fact that the day of God is coming, beloved. Now, he's reaching out. Let me just say, you know, anytime you're in church, it is a moral institution. We put out what the Bible talks about, and there are rights and wrongs. And so sometimes that comes across something we receive, other times hard. But never forget the fact that you are always beloved by God and by us and by me. I love you. Here, Peter says, you are my beloved friends and loved ones, dear friends. Based on the fact that the day of God is coming, beloved, seeing that you look. For such things. He said, I want you to look for such things. That little phrase there is in the present tense. It means a continuing attitude of expectancy. Like the song that we sing soon and very soon. Notice what it says. I want you to be looking for such things. (laughs) I love that phrase. Such things. What kind of things? The day of God. The eternal state, the new heavens and the new earth, the wonderful things. Just go to the book of Revelation and take a look at the last couple of chapters there and you'll see some of those such things. The kingdom, the glorious kingdom awaiting us in the presence of God forever and ever. Such things. He said, you are looking for such things. The older I get, I must admit, I'm looking for such things. What a day that will be with my Jesus, I will say. One time, Pauline and I had the privilege to experience a hot air balloon ride. We were in Napa. Thankfully, as it began to fluff up there, it was secured to the ground by several ropes. The process of heating it and filling it was interesting. Superheated air, nothing like helium or anything, just air. It began to fill up and then pull and tug at those ropes to get free. And then as those ropes were untied, the balloon rose majestically towards the sky. It was a phenomenal experience. I recommend it. I thought back on that moment this week, and to me, in my mind, it's the picture of an attitude a Christian should possess. Our heart is set on heaven. And as our heart is fired up and filled up with the blessed air of the Holy Spirit's presence, one by one as we get older, those cords that are tying us to this earth are cut. They bind us to this earth. But then daily, more and more, finally, that day comes when we get to soar to heaven. The fact of the matter is, we are going to see such things. Such things. 
Peter said, I can't even really describe the thing that you are going to see someday. Notice it says, seeing that you look, since that's something you're doing right now, it's present tense, you're doing it right now. I know you're looking for such things. In light of that, I want you to be diligent. The word be diligent there means to make every effort. Look at that verse. Be diligent. To make every effort. It's the same word that Paul said when he said, make it your every effort to come and see me soon. That is, we are to put some spiritual elbow grease into our Christian life. Now, I know it's a popular saying, let go and let God, and there's some truth to it. But I think too many people are just letting go and forgetting God. God wants us to put some diligence into our Christian life. In other words, I want you to take some effort to keep the coming of our Lord in the forefront of your mind. It is a blessed privilege of participating in the day of God. Because of that, I want you to be diligent that you may be found in Him of peace. Now look at that little phrase, found of Him. Isn't it a wonderful thought that we will be found? We will be found. And not just found when that day comes, but found of Him, it says. Found of Him. That means Jesus Christ is personally going to make sure that we make it to heaven. He's our personal Savior. In 1989, there was a tremendous, terrible earthquake in Armenia. And in just four minutes, it flattened the nation, killed 30,000 people. It was one of the deadliest natural disasters in modern history. I remember reading a story that came out of that many years ago. After that deadly tremor, a father raced to the elementary school to save his son. When he arrived, he saw that the building had been leveled. Looking at that mass of stones and rubble, he remembered the promise he had made to his child. Son, no matter what happens, always know I will be there for you. Driven by his promise, driven by his love for his son, he found the area closest to where the room had been of his son's class. Other parents arrived and were sobbing and wailing for their children. It's too late. It's too late. They said to the man, you know they're dead, but he was determined to find his son. He kept pulling through the rubble. Even a police officer encouraged him to give up, but he refused. He dug for hours, eight hours, and then 16, 32 hours went by. His hands were raw and his energy was gone. Finally, after 38 continuous hours, think of that, over a day, a day and a half, he pulled back one of those broken pieces of concrete, and he, of all things, heard his son's voice. He called out his boy's name, Arman, Arman. And a voice answered him, Dad, it's me. And then the boy added these priceless words. I told the other kids not to worry. I told them if you were alive, you would save me. When you saved me, you would save them too. Because you promised, no matter what, I'll be there for you. Found by Him. Aren't we glad that Jesus will find us personally? 
Now that's an amazing thought. But while it's amazing, frankly, it's also daunting. Because that means that we will be personally found and everything that we are and say and do will be open. Nothing is hidden. In fact, everything will be brought to light. All of our motives, all of our actions, everything we do. That's what Paul reminded the church in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. He said, therefore, judge nothing before the time until the Lord come, who both will bring to light the hidden things. Yes, we will be found of Him when He comes. He will bring out into the open every motive, every emotion, every moment of the heart. Now, how does God want to find us when He comes? Well, Peter here lays it out. How does God want to find us in that day? He wants to find us living in peace. A peaceful attitude. There are three aspects of that peace, and let's talk about that this morning. First of all, that means peace with God. Peace with God. Now, every time a person humbles themselves, and like that beautiful chorus we sang a few moments ago, I'll say, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. My life is yours, Lord. And the moment you say yes to Jesus, it's not a big thing. That is that moment. But it is a, oftentimes so big to get to that place that you finally say, that's it. Yes, Lord. Yes. Peace with God. The moment you say yes to God, it's actually a moment of reconciliation. That is, we are the enemies of God. Strange as that may sound, it's actually true. Notice what 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says. To wit, now think about this, that God was in Christ. Jesus is God in the flesh. What was His job here on earth? He was reconciling. Every human, every human, each of us, to a one, is a sinner by birth and by choice. As a result of that, we are on the outs with God. But God, out of His great love, gave a way for us to be reconciled. Un- amazing. The fact of the matter is, many people say, well, I don't believe in God. But I don't think they realize quite the full meaning of that. Being an unbeliever is one thing. But the truth is, if we're an unbeliever, we're actually a God-rejecter. And being a God-rejecter is quite another thing. There's only one way to be saved. You've got to humble yourself. You've got to be willing to kneel before God. Until a person is willing to humbly kneel before God and just say, I'm wrong. I've been wrong. All this time I've been rejecting you. I'm wrong. I'm a sinner. I'm a lost sinner. And until you're willing to humble yourself and bow the knee, you're not going to be healed. You know, knee pain is a common problem, especially for older adults. After years of going through life, a lot of wear and tear on those knees. Medical science, however, says there are some things you can do. It might help a little. Lose a little weight. Exercise. In fact, they say one of the best exercises is sitting on a chair, stretching your leg, bending it, making sure that you keep the range of motion. But you know, I was thinking about that, how the same is true spiritually. 
The same way to keep our spirit healthy is by kneeling before God in prayer. And if you can't kneel on your knees, you can certainly kneel in your heart, humbly before God, and receiving God and making peace with God. And so, Peter said, when Jesus comes, make sure you have peace with God. Number two, make sure you have peace with your fellow believers. Folks, we can't live ill-mannered, disrespectful, graceless, disagreeable lives and expect to have the peace of God. That's what Paul told the Ephesians in chapter 4 and verse 3. He said, endeavoring. I'm glad he said endeavoring, not make sure it happens. It's not always possible, but you at least can endeavor. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Bond of peace. That is, be committed to peace. Make it a commitment of your life to be a peaceful person. I once read a sad excerpt, an article actually, about servers in restaurants. And they stated that Many of them stated that Sunday was the worst day of the week for them to work. That's interesting. The main complaint was not just working on Sunday, but at the establishments that they were there all too often, it was filled with impatient, rude, and sometimes obnoxious people. All who had just come to the church. Now friends, that ought not to be. Christians should not be the rude people in the community. They ought to be the sweetest people, kindness, endeavoring to keep that peace with others. Peace with God and peace with fellow believers. Then finally, peace with yourself. When Jesus comes, He wants us to have peace in our spirit. Personal peace of mind. Really, that comes from a strong faith in the Lord. Here's how Paul spoke of it in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 7. He said, And the peace of God, Aren't you glad it's the peace of God? It's not peace I work up. I mean, you can go out and sit on a mountaintop and hum all you want to. You can make sure all your energies points line up and you can eat kale. I don't care what you do, but you are not going to have peace because peace comes from God. Now, all those things may be good. I don't know. Not the kale. I can guarantee that, but... But I will say this, that the peace of God will definitely help you. And the peace of God, which passes understanding, it transcends any human comprehension, any power intellectually. It transcends everything. It is just incredible. When the peace of God floods the soul, it's kind of like, I really don't even understand why I feel so good right this moment, but it's God. He guards the heart. And He guards the mind. Jesus does that. It's a peace that frees us from faithless work. How do you know if you have peace of mind? Here's a test. Here's a test for you. If you knew Jesus was going to come tomorrow, it's about noon here in a few moments, 24 hours from now, noon on Monday, if you knew that Jesus was coming on Monday at noon, what would your next 24 hours be like? I mean, what would it be like? Would you be, what would you, what would you be doing? Would you be living in complete peace and calm? Would you know and say, you know what, I've settled all my accounts. 
Or would you be living in absolute terror and fear? The Apostle John reminded us in 1 John chapter 4, verse 17, he said, you want to have boldness in the day of the judgment of God. You want to have boldness that when He comes, everything's good. The real tenure of a Christian life is not trying to create a perfect world. And sometimes I kind of wonder about how we're always trying to make sure we have a better world. I'm all for that. But on the other hand, really, my peace does not depend on the fact that this world is a better place to live in. My peace is being able to live in a fallen world surrounded by fallen people in the midst of a cursed creation and still having a settled heart. Everything's okay. Everything's all right with me and Jesus. I wish things were better in this world, but it really doesn't matter because I have peace with God, peace with my fellow believers, and a peace of mind. Four commandments for living. Exist peacefully. Number two, behave impeccably. Back to verse 14, please. Wherefore, beloved, seeing that you look for such things, be diligent that you may be found in Him in peace without spot. He's speaking of our Christian character, spotless. He said, I want you to have a spotless Christian character. I want you to live with integrity, impeccable virtue, and moral strength. My definition, I love the definition, it motivates me. And that is this, who are you in private? Because that's who you really are. You know, I dress up in this nice little suit and tie, and I look all... Fancy and holy, I guess. I don't know. But thank you. But I will tell you, that's not who I am. Who I am is who I am on the inside. Who you are is who you are on the inside. What is your character like? What is? What do you like in private? When nobody else is watching, do you pray? Do you read your Bible? What kind of a heart do you have? Here's how Peter says it. He said, you need to live without spot. Now, To those in the world, they might say, oh, there you go again. All those Christians always bagging on people that don't live up to certain standards, you know, spotless. Who can live spotless? But you're not understanding what Bible is saying when it says spotless. Because there is a difference between God's spotlessness, perfection, and man's. The truth is, if you think that perfect means without any error or without ever getting frustrated or without ever showing your humanity, you don't understand perfection. The Bible expresses it in two different ways. There's the perfection of God and the perfection of man. Let's look, first of all, at the perfection of God. Now, the perfection of God is absolute, guaranteed, complete, total, utter spotlessness in quality. And that belongs to God and God alone. If you see one of these crazy onyockers on TV, or you listen to them. That's a term from my dad when he was growing up. I don't know what it is, but it's a bad thing. And um, if you see one of these guys or women on TV, and they're claiming to be spotless, you that's one thing you know. They're not spotless. Matthew 5, 8, Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father, which is in heaven, is perfect. Here that term perfection is used in two different ways. There's the perfection of God the Father, and then there's the perfection of humanity, which is maturity. 
Everything that God does is perfect. His work is perfect. Deuteronomy 32 and verse 4. He is the rock. His work is perfect. His work is perfect. You can be sure if God did it, it's perfect. All His ways are just. His knowledge is perfect. His ways are perfect. Psalm 18, verse 30, verse for God, His way is perfect. His laws are perfect. Psalm 19, verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect. Never listen to anybody that says, oh, well, there's errors in Scripture. They're crazy. They're wacko. Just don't even give them the time of day. No, God's laws are perfect. God incarnate, Jesus Christ, was morally perfect. Now, I know Netflix wants to sell you the story that Jesus had an affair with Mary Magdalene or, you know, he was some kind of a gay person, whatever. Folks, trust me, Jesus Christ is morally perfect. And he always did the Father's will. Now, a few of us might occasionally do what is right. Others of you may predominantly do what is right, but no human always does everything that's morally right. We will make mistakes, and we won't always get it right, but Jesus always did. So there's the perfection of God, which is, in fact, absolute. But then there's the perfection of humans, and this is what Paul is talking about. He said, I want you to, or excuse me, Peter, he is saying, I want you to be spotless or mature. Maybe not sinless always. be great, but it's probably not going to happen. God alone is perfect. He is three times perfect. Isaiah 6 and verse 3. Holy, holy, holy. But in the Bible, God's perfection is not the same as man's perfection. Man's perfection, spotlessness, impeccability, is seen in James chapter 1 and verse 4. But let patience have her perfect work. You've got to know you're going to be challenged in this life. And it's going to come at you. But that's not the time to quit serving God. Let patience have its perfect work. That you may be what? Perfect. That word means to be mature. To be complete, really, is the actual meaning of the word. God says, I want you to be a, the, the, the total package for God. When life gets tough, then that means the tough gets going. I want you to get down there and start serving God. It is the time to double down with God. When it gets tough, pray more. When it gets tough, read the Bible more. When it feels tough to go to church, go more. Just keep putting one foot in front of the other. Do the next right thing. What do you do? Just keep doing the next right thing. Author W.T. Richardson says, The mark of a saint is not perfection, but consecration. The saint is not a man without faults, but a man who has given himself unreservedly to God. That's what a spotless person is. Living consistently. Anticipating how it's going to be in heaven. You know, heaven is going to be filled with so much wonderful activity with God and for God. I mean, it's going to be amazing. We're going to have such a great time in prayer and giving to the Lord and spending time in fellowship and worship. You know, sometimes I wonder, folks kind of have the idea that Heaven is going to be whatever to you. But you know what? If you're not comfortable with serving God here, I don't know that you're going to be comfortable in heaven. 
My anxious heart be still. Watch, work, and pray. And then I will not matter. When my Lord shall come at midnight or noon, He cannot come too soon to take me home. I'm destined for eternity, eternal purity. God wants me to live an impeccable life. That's the way He. It's, that's the way heaven's going to be. Might as well get a head start. The truth is, heaven's going to be a culture shock for a lot of folks. Let's get a head start now. Four commandments for living: exist peacefully, behave impeccably. And number three, guard diligently. Everything we do and say reflects on the Lord. When we're a Christian, it does. We need to think of our Lord's reputation. Wherefore, beloved, verse 14, seeing that you look for such things, such things, such things, woo, such things. I can't wait. Be diligent that you may be found of Him in peace without spot. I want you to live impeccably, but not only impeccably, I want you to be blameless. That is, I want you to care about the reputation of the Lord. You need to know that what you do, what you say, reflects on Jesus. That word, blameless, means really no blemishes. It is the same as Peter talked about a chapter earlier, chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 13. And he shall receive the reward of unrighteousness... As they that counted a pleasure to riot, and that's just the wild party life, you know. If, it, if it's all about parties in the daytime, I mean, they don't have to have party, nighttime party. They will, they're ready to party in the daytime. Spots they are and blemishes. There's that word again. He said they're blemishes, sporting themselves, that is deceiving themselves, alone deceivings while they feast with you. They're just these kind of Christians that live these wild lifestyles. Verse 14, having eyes full of adultery, just obsessed with sex, that cannot cease from sin, they have compulsive behavior, beguiling unstable souls, and they're not content to just live their own wicked lives. They want to seduce other people, vulnerable people, and there are lots of those around. And heart they have exercised with covetous practices. I don't know what it is about those folks, but they are just experts at creating desires in other people. Oh, man, it's so fun to party. Cursed children. Spiritual spoiled brats is what they are. God said these all, and he just kind of gives you a characteristic, kind of gives you a read down of these blemishes. Blemishes on the cause of Christ blemishes on the reputation for the Lord. In verse 15, he just kind of summarizes that they've forsaken the right way. They refuse to live with moral standards. Nobody's going to tell me how to live. What's right for you is right for you. What's right for me is right for me. No, that's just stupid. That's not what God said. Paul clarified that matter. And I say that in love. Philippians 2 and verse 15. That ye may be blameless. No blemishes. No blemishes. Nothing that hurts the name of God. Harmless. And then notice what he says, the sons of God. The sons of God without rebuke in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation. There you go. That pretty much describes the world we live in. A crooked and a perverse nation. 
God said, but not you. You know, I want you to have lives that reflect Jesus. Remember the reputation of the Lord, among whom you shine as lights. Notice the key phrase, you're sons of God. Act like it. You're a son of God. You're a child of God. Act like it. With such a name like that, we should act like it. We love God and we serve God. You know, there's a lot of interest right now what's going on in the U.K. There's a big transition of monarchy. Everybody's watching, especially watching all the relatives of King Charles. Imagine for a few moments what it would be like to have been born with that name. Really, through no uh, anything of ourselves, just the fact that we're in that bloodline. That would be a lot to live up to. That would be a name that would be challenging to live up to. Think about for a moment what it is to be born again. To have the very DNA of God in our soul. And God is favored to give us His name. He calls us Christians. Christ ones. You walk as a son of God in this world. Your name is Christ one. In fact, God said in this verse, He said, you are the lights of God. You are the very lights of God. I'm not walking in this world, but you are. I'm not here, but you are. You are a son of God. You are a light in this world. And as a result of that, we are to show it. And pretty much whatever's on the inside does come out. I love the story about the three prospectors who found a rich vein of gold up here in the foothills. When they realized what they had had, they decided, we got a good thing going here and it's best if nobody else finds out about it. So they each took a vow to keep it secret. They headed down to town to file their claims, get all the equipment necessary to mine gold. And true to their vows, they did not say a word to anybody. They filled their claim. They brought the equipment and headed back up to the mine. But when they did, a crowd of people followed those two guys. And the reason? They had told nobody. But it was because of the expression on their faces that gave them away. Their faces were aglow with the anticipation they were going to be super rich. Yes, even our faces reflect the glorious fact of our riches in heaven. People ought to just look at us and say, Boy, I don't know. There is something different about you. 4,000 years ago, there was a lowly fellow. A slave. Get this. A slave. He changed a nation, the most powerful nation in the world. How did he do that? His name? Joseph. But he lived in such a God-reflecting way. Listen to what Pharaoh said about him. Genesis 41 and verse 38. And Pharaoh said unto his servants, Can we find such a one as this? In whom... A man in whom the Spirit of God is. Folks, when we live in light of the second coming of Christ, when we live with that sense that Jesus is coming and we don't want to do anything to cast any aspersion on His name, we live with this light about us, our actions as well as just who we are. And it shows in our faces. Are we remembering He's coming soon? I'm told there's a church in Wisconsin that has a beautiful tradition. It's done at the close of their communion service. 
just to keep their hearts reminded about the coming Christ. We're having our Lord's Supper tonight at the end of our Bible study time. You're invited to come, as always. But they adapted this tradition from the Jewish closing of a Passover meal. You may know that the hope of any devout Jew is to be able to, at least once in their life, celebrate the Passover in Jerusalem, David's city. And so at the end of their Passover feast, they will raise the cup and say, Next year, in Jerusalem. And it's an interesting thought about the Lord's Supper. We know the Lord's Supper looks back on the sacrifice of the Lord on Calvary. But also, Paul said, you do show until he come. It is also a reminder to look forward to his coming. And so at the close of the communion, this church in Wisconsin, they raise their communion cups in anticipation of the Lord's return. They say, next time in heaven. Next time in heaven. We are always to be thinking about the coming of our Lord. There are four important commands, knowing that He's coming. Exist peacefully with God, with others, with yourself. Behave impeccably. Spotless living. Guard diligently the reputation of the Lord. And then finally, share evangelistically. Here is the real purpose behind all of this. Now verse 15 takes us to a thought, and I must admit, as I studied at this time, I was just taken back by something I really hadn't noticed much before. Verse 15, And account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. That little phrase, just that phrase, is just full of meaning. Quickly examine. He said, And I want you to account for something. That is, I want you to take notice of something. I want you to look at something. I want you to stop for a minute. And take notice of this. Take account of it. That, that is, the reason or the purpose for the long-suffering. That means the patience. The, why did God, why has God waited so long to come? I mean, why has it been 2,000 years and counting since the ascension of our Lord? When He said, I'm coming back. And I'm coming right through these gates. Why has he waited so long? Well, Peter said, here's why. Because is the reason is salvation. God wants the saved, God wants the lost to be saved. The Lord is waiting for people to be saved. In fact, that's exactly what he says a few verses earlier in verse 9. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise. Don't ever think that God's not coming just because it's been a long time. In our view, with God, it's only a day because a day is a thousand years. But some men count it slackness. I don't. People who love the Bible and know God don't believe that. The fact is, the reason it appears that He is slow is because He is long-suffering. He's just super patient. He doesn't want anybody to perish. He wants all to come to repentance. Now, He's not going to make you repent, but He wants you to come to it. He wants you to get to that point, like we said before, where you bow your knee, as we sang earlier, and you say, yes, Lord, yes. He wants everybody to say, I have no desire at all to go to hell. I want to go to heaven. 
And He is looking for your repentance. Folks, we are in the midst of patience time. This is patience time. But just so you know, that time is going to change. Now, what should we do? In light of the fact that we're in patience time, in light of the fact that God is coming soon, what does He want us to do? Well, we're not supposed to just sit on it and go get our pajamas and sit on the rooftop and just look for heaven and say, I know He's coming any moment. No. Here's what Paul said in 2 Corinthians. He said, Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, that means the fear of the Lord, not that God is this terrible person. It just means knowing that God is uh, awesome, holy. Knowing therefore the judgment that is coming, we persuade men. We persuade men. It doesn't mean, you know, that if you get around to it, you know, sometime in your life, we might try to invite somebody. No, we persuade men. We make it an effort. That is, we all should preach the gospel. That's what Paul said. He told Timothy, he said, tell the people, do the work of an evangelist. Now, he didn't say, enter into the office of an evangelist. There's a few people that do that. But he said, everybody can do the work of an evangelist. You'd say, well, how do I do that? I'm not a preacher. No, that's not actually what God is saying. Preaching just means telling. Telling forth the good news. Now, you may not be a Pastor Mike who can articulate the that amazing truth so well. But all of us, we can do different things to evangelize. We can take one of our little door hangers. We always have them. Pauline and I have a little habit uh, that we, we're at a store. We kind of park out a little bit, not always the closest. So that on the way in, we'll take a few of those little door hangers and we make them car hangers. And we'll just put a few. You probably have got one on your car before. We just put them in there and going into the store. We can pass out a track or an invitation to one of our big events or whatever. But the fact of the matter is we can certainly invite people. We can try to persuade people. And one thing we can all do, regardless of our money or our physical condition or whatever, or the time we have, we can all pray. Romans chapter 10, verse 1 says it this way. Paul said, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to Israel is they could be saved. Do you have, is, it, is there someone in, that's in your heart that really is deep in your heart? You really want them to be saved? Are you praying for them to be saved? Now, God's not going to just reach down and, you know, just take their soul and make them a Christian. That's not the way He works. But He does bring things into their life because of our prayer. He brings people to tell them things about the Lord and make it church seem more beautiful or give them Sundays off or whatever the case is. But here's the question I have. Do you have a person that you are praying for to be saved? Or several people? Is it a neighbor? Is it someone at work? Or maybe big time. I am praying for our president that he'll be saved. Now, I'm not against standing for righteousness, but I'm saying... Why don't we pray for something big or praying for some big sports star or some big movie person or whatever. I mean, go big. Go long or go home, as they say in golf. I mean, let's just go. We ought to pray big. It would be amazing what would happen if we just have a prayer list. 
Invite. Ask. Everybody can do that. Here's what Jesus said in Luke chapter 19 and verse 13. Occupy until I come. Occupy until I come. It seems like to me that when I look sometimes at the state of the evangelical church in America, I think some people thought that Jesus said, retreat until we're raptured. (laughs) But Jesus said, occupy. I want you to be busy on the account of the fact that Jesus is coming. He is waiting so that people can get saved. Then I want you to persuade me. There's a work to do. John Quartz of the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association told a story I'll share with you. And we'll close. He said when he was, a, he's an older man, he said when he was a 16-year-old boy, he and eight of his cousins went to their grandpa's farm. He said we were all there having a big time, and we asked Papa if we could go out and work with him the next day. He said, no. He said, it's not really a kid's work. I don't want you out there, but they pestered him, he said. We all wanted to play work out there. So he said, all right, I will. But he said, we start early and it's a long day and we don't come in until we're done. They said, it's all right, Papa, we want to go. He said, all right. So the next morning, by five in the morning, they were on out there in the farm working. He said, they were shoveling and they were tossing hay. And he said, for all of us cousins, for the first hour, he said, it was a blast. But he said, It wasn't long until it became work. And then the sun came up and it got hot. And he said that hay was going down his back and it was itchy. And a few hours into it, they were just so tired. And they said, all right, we're we're done. He said, oh, no, you're staying out here. He said, no. They broke for lunch. They were just dead. They ate their lunch. They felt like, well, maybe this will be the time. He said, no, we're staying to the end, boys. About 3 o'clock in the afternoon, he said, "Uh, Storm came, he said, it just soaked them all the way to their skin. They said, there we were, tired, hot, now soaked, itchy. We just desperately wanted to go back. Papa said, no, you're staying till 5 o'clock. 5 o'clock came, he said, all right. He said, let's go on back. Went back to the house, and they were so excited, they got showered up, bathed up, had dinner, and he said they were, your grandpa gathers all around the table. He said, now boys, I want to tell you something. He said, God has really blessed me. Very grateful for the farm he's given me. And I'm thankful for you boys. But he said, I will tell you, it's been work. And there have been many a time I've wanted to come in from the field. But I knew if I was going to be the man I was supposed to be, I would not come in until quitting time. I would stay in the field. And so Mr. Court said, that's what our job is as Christians, to stay in the field until it's quitting time. And I want to say to many of you this morning, I am so impressed and grateful for you because many of you have been serving the Lord not for months or weeks or years, but decades. God bless you. You are staying in the field. My friend, it's not quitting time. 
during the time that the Lord is coming back, He wants us to exist peacefully, behave impeccably, guard diligently, and share evangelistically. And when you will come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in Him be found, dressed in your righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the King. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are We hope you enjoyed listening to the preaching and teaching from God's Word today. You can get more information about our church and about starting a relationship with Jesus Christ at www.thehomechurch.net. From all of us here at The Home Church in Lodi, California, thank you for joining us.